Saturday Satan Sunday Saint Fooling your neighbor That's what you think Reading the good book Singing the hymn Come Monday morning And it's back to a life of sin This is hell. Before we do anything, Alex, please tell us what was today's introductory music. As uh, Ernest Tubb, oh. in the words of David Berman, all my favorite singers couldn't sing. <laughs> Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. The police have become more and more violent. Sure, 93% of the protests against racialized police violence last summer were surprisingly peaceful. But in major cities across the country, those protests were far more violent than in the past. Yes, back in 2011, protesters at Occupy Wall Street and Zuccotti Park were brutally and cruelly attacked by police. And before that, protesters at the Republican National Convention in New York City back in 2004 were waylaid upon by cops. But if you go back to the D- Democratic National Convention back in 1996 that happened here in Chicago, when this show aired for the very first time, protesters couldn't get arrested even if they tried. Back then, caged protest zones and negotiated agreements between protesters and the police kept everything relatively calm. Not that this shift toward more brutal and cruel policing started in the 1990s. You have to go all the way back to the Nixon administration and the fallout from urban uprisings of the 1960s to find when the police started kicking ass a lot more than they were. It's not like Chicago police during the police or during the police riot outside the 1968 Democratic National Convention were the kindest and gentlest cops. The follow-up from that 1960s era of violent policing was the famous Kerner Commission report, which blasted police forces across the country for not protecting freedom of speech and assembly and instead beating on people. That's when something changed at the highest levels of US justice and suddenly democracy that was focused on civil rights was driven more by the demands of the market than its people. The new market-focused democracy and policing would be the foundation for the far more militarized and brutal policing we see today. Police that no longer defend democracy, but instead uphold authoritarianism. In a few minutes, we will learn why and how cops while policing protests have become far more cruel when we speak with Paul A. Passavant, author of Policing Protest, The Post-Democratic State and the Figure of Black Insurrection. Paul is Associate Professor of Political Science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. He's also the author of No Escape, Freedom of Speech and the Paradox of Rights, and co-editor of Empire's New Clothes, Reading Heart and Negri. Follow Paul on Twitter at P. Passavant, that's P-P-A-S-S-A-V-A-N-T. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today is supposed to be Egon Sheely, but apparently it's not. It's Alexander Jerry. Alex, anything new by you? Uh, yeah, yes. This morning I watched uh, dozens of parasitic wasps emerge from the back of a comatose tomato hornworm caterpillar. Was I am on YouTube? never going. No, in my in my <laughs> garden, uh, I am never going to eat rice again. It was uh, it was deeply problematic. Yeah, I'm going to be going on vacation sh- soon, and my sister, who knows all about bugs, she got a degree in bugs and snakes. She's going to be showing me all sorts of weird bugs for the next couple of weeks, which is always disturbing and enlightening. We are, again, looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board as Egon does, as Jess does, as Richard does, as Alex is doing today, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. We are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Thursday. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. 
This position does come with a modest stipend, so keep that in mind. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you do need to live in the Chicago area. However, we will also be seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely, stuff that can be done no matter if you live in London or Laos. You too can be part of the This Is Hell crew wherever you live, so stay tuned in for that. Again, if you are interested in becoming a producer, a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question from hell in a rich person voice is, so... Where are you summering? Where are you summering? <laughs> uh, I wish I could do a rich person's voice, but I just can't. I tried yesterday, and it was a horrible failure. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do most weeks following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our interview with Paul Passavant. Not only can you email us, tweet at us, message us via Facebook, you can also just send us stuff too. This is hell. 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Tom emailed us saying, Hi Chuck, hi Alex. It was great to see Chuck and Jeff Dorchin recently at Jeff's reading of some moments of truth at Carrie's Lounge. With any luck, the pandemic will subside and we'll have more opportunities to safely visit more often. By the way, have you ever interviewed Prabhat Patnaik? I happen upon this compelling, insightful essay of his in the Boston Review. It seemed like a sufficiently hellish topic for the show. The article Tom sends a link to is headlined, Why Neoliberalism Needs Neo-Fascists. And this goes very much along with Paul's writing today, which by headline alone sounds perfect for this as hell. In it, Prabhat states, as the old prop of trickle-down economics lost its credibility, a new prop was needed to sustain the neoliberal regime politically. The solution came in the form of an alliance between globally integrated corporate capital and local neo-fascist elements. Thanks, Tom. Making that link between neoliberalism and neo-fascism is definitely worth the discussion. And Alex, we're talking about possibly trying to get Prabhat on the show on Thursday. If we do, we will be thanking you on the show, Tom. And yes, it. when the pandemic subsides, I'm very much looking forward for all of us getting back together. Not just for the upcoming This Is Hell 25th Anniversary Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, but also to get back to the weekly drink and think. This is how office hours. We got another email from someone who was at Jeff's reading of Moments of Truth. Derek writes, good morning, Chuck. This is Derek. We've met a couple of times at Carrie's. Just wanted to reach out to say thanks again for the advice, as well as the alley oop with This Is Hell Brazil correspondent Brian Muir. It's a little less than three weeks until the Chicago DSA panel event, Anti-Imperialism in Latin America, which happens on August 18th. Brian will be joined on the panel by Eric Klepe Montenegro of the Red Condor Collective and Austin Gonzalez of the National DSA and co-host of the Machete Imate podcast. Pretty stacked lineup. Thanks again, Derek. So the event is described as the first of two exciting panels being put on in fall 2021 by the newly formed Internationalism Subcommittee of the Chicago DSA. Anti-imperialism in Latin America is its title, and it gathers three activists, journalists, and political analysts to discuss the tumultuous history of the region and its special relationship with empire from the time of the Monroe Doctrine's unveiling in 1823. Latin America has been considered by many U.S. politicians to be America's backyard, where labor rights were freely suppressed, precious natural resources extracted for corporate profit, and neoliberal economic experiments have met with devastating consequences. If you would like to attend this online event, event, register on Facebook at facebook.com slash Chicago Dem Socialists or go to chicagodsa.com 
Org. This is in no way an endorsement of the Democratic Socialists of America. Just wanted to tell you about an event that Brian Muir was attending and an event that a listener put together and met us over at Carrie's Lounge. Mark also wrote us about Jeff's reading of Moments of Truth. I hate that I missed Jeff reading at Carrie's Lounge last weekend before last and seeing Chuck and Alex and Mel. I had to work, which is my own damn fault because I own the place. Then after work, it was like 90 degrees and way too hot for me to bike to Carrie's, so I'm sorry. Also, I had hoped everyone already knew palm oil was horrible, although regular Ritz crackers with palm oil are sadly delicious. And those are two weird words, sadly delicious. Oh, this is so good, I'm crying. First, I think everyone knew palm oil was horrible, Mark, but whether they knew it or was a major uh, contributor to deforestation, which leads to climate change and can release viruses that turn into pandemics, and palm oil is in everything, Uh, that's another matter. Not too sure if everybody knew all that. Derek and Tom, it was great seeing both of you at Jeff's reading of Moments of Truth at Carrie's a couple weeks ago. Mark, I was very, very disappointed you could not make it. I hope to see all of you at our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show. This is art on Saturday, September 18th. Also at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Coming up, policing protests has got a lot more violent. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, so where are you, Summering? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex will also be telling us who is on the rest of this week's shows. Live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. It wasn't that long ago that you could not get arrested by police at a political protest, even if you tried. However, that's all changed since this show started 25 years ago. Now protesters are kettled, cornered without escape, or innocent bystanders are swept up in what becomes mass arrests. Police, with visceral anger toward protesters, have seemingly cracked down harder and harder at each and every ensuing protest. Here to help us understand why the policing of protests has become so brutal. Paul A. Passavant is author of Policing Protests, the Post-Democratic State, and the Figure of Black Insurrection. Welcome to This Is Hell, Paul. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. You write that systematic abuse of those exercising their free or First Amendment rights points to the emergence of a distinctive state formation I call neoliberal authoritarianism. Neoliberal authoritarianism is a state formation that is post-democratic and post-legitimation. Those political subjects who are effectively attached to the state, who provide it political support, enjoy its expressive cruelties. The narrow question of policing protest provides an opening through which we can see that we have entered a new political era of government and political sensibility in the United States. What do you mean by enjoy its expressive cruelties? Do you mean they benefit from those cruelties or is there some sort of even sadism involved? Are those who support neoliberal authoritarianism getting pleasure from inflicting pain? Uh, It's the latter, Chuck. Um, when I say enjoy, um, there's a kind of affective attachment or enjoyment um, of watching police uh, brutalize protesters. So, for example, there were many videos of police brutalizing Occupy Wall Street activists um, that are posted on YouTube. And if you look through the comment threads, Um, you know, you can see that some folks are actually sort of getting off on, um, you know, or just enthusiastic, you know, just love watching police brutalize protesters. Um, And that's obviously problematic um, from the standpoint of a constitutional democracy for, you know, for one thing. You mentioned the protests on September and the actions by police on September 24th, 2011, after a march to Union Square. Small group of women involved with the Occupy Wall Street protests were captured by the New York uh, Police Department within orange police netting. Then they were cruelly and unnecessarily pepper sprayed by now retired New York Police Department Deputy Inspector Anthony Bologna. How are we certain that this is worse than the way police treated protesters in the past? Are we simply more aware now that video of police violence can quickly, easily, and conveniently be uploaded and recorded? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
in the in the nineteen sixties, uh, police were um, undisciplined, poorly trained, poorly educated. Many of them, even when they knew that they were being observed by social scientists, just freely expressed themselves, um, you know, in in the most racist ways, and. Um, and when they saw a protest or a demonstration, they didn't see uh, people exercising their First Amendment rights. Instead, what they saw was a mob. And so the way they would respond to it is to escalate their level of force. And social scientists call that the escalated force model of protest policing. And if the protesters didn't back down, then the police would escalate their force even more. Of course, this would agitate people, and the result would generally be, um, you know, beatings by the police of protesters. Um, but they were poorly disciplined, poorly trained, and they were not as well armed as police are today. And so today, you have, generally speaking, better trained police um, who are better armed. Um, they've got more military grade hardware. Um, and so arguably right now we're in a more dangerous situation um, with respect to um, policing uh, or the policing of protests because uh, they are better armed and they're better trained. So do more educated cops, does that mean less violent uh, policing? And, and conversely, do... Do more military-trained cops mean more violent policing? Does education lead to less violence, and does military tra training lead to more violence? Um, I can't answer about the question around education, um, but I can say that uh, certainly police are better trained today uh, than they were in the 1960s. They're better armed, and studies show that when police do have uh, military weaponry at their disposal, they tend to use it. Did the escalated force model mean a kind of system of mutually assured violence? <laughs> yeah, it could, it, it could lead to that. Because when you respond aggressively to, um, you know, to a group of demonstrators, uh, that agitates uh, demonstrators and they become you know, more aggressive in response. And so it would become a kind of mutual escalation that would lead you know, in disorder and, um, you know, and typically police trying to find somebody to beat. You write that between, it's better to de-escalate tensions. Yeah, yeah. You, you write between September 17th, 2011 and September 17th, 2012, the message of Occupy's demonstrations uh, seeking to draw attention to deepening economic inequalities and the capture of the state by oligarchs and corporations became derailed by the persistently hostile protest policing of the New York Police Department. Was that the point? Was that the NYPD's mission to derail a campaign whose goal it was to draw attention to deepening economic inequalities and the capture of the state by oligarchs and corporations? Because I'm certain the police would argue they were there simply because Occupy posed a security threat to the surrounding community. Yeah, I can't say whether they intended to disrail um, to derail Occupy's message around economic inequality and um, the state having gotten captured by corporations and, and oligarchs. And by the way, we should bear in mind that Occupy Wall Street, we're, we're closing in on the 10-year anniversary of Occupy Wall Street, if you can believe it. But functionally speaking, that's what happened. And, um, and the NYPD is a police department that has been um, where broken windows policing has been deeply ingrained in that police department going back to the early 90s. And, um, and so because they respond in general to any perception of disorder very aggressively and with zero tolerance, you carry that over to a demonstration and their whole modality of policing is to respond to the slightest sign of disorder aggressively with overwhelming force. And that has with zero tolerance for any kind of disorder. And when we're talking about demonstrators and protesters like Occupy Wall Street, uh, this means that there's zero tolerance for them exercising their First Amendment rights. And in that respect, this whole mode of protest policing that I call the security model of protest policing um, is post-democratic. 
Um, it doesn't let people get their message out. And so in a way to deal with democracy, you know, to exercise democratic rights, to deal with economic inequality um, and the capture of the state by corporations and oligarchs, the way that Occupy Wall Street was trying to, um, trying to do to, 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 shed, to shine a light on that, in a way you wind up getting sucked into having to deal with uh, the authoritarian mode of protest policing and how, uh, and the authoritarian mode of, of policing in the United States today. And that's not to say, and you don't in your book, that's not to say that it all started with Occupy Wall Street. You also mentioned no. protesters arrested during the 2004 Republican National Convention who yeah. were subjected to excessive, degrading, and in some cases, torturous custody for uh, for processing after their Absolutely. first arrest. Arrestees, you write, endured uh, detentions lasting over 24, 30, 40, and in some instances, over 50 hours. In one case, a woman on her way to purchase a milkshake was swept up yep. in an indiscriminate NYPD arrest and spent over 50 hours in custody. Conditions at Pier 57, the hastily constructed detention facility for RNC arrestees located in a former bus depot, were filthy with grime and hazardous chemicals on the floor. And you go on to talk about how disturbing this place was. Now, this was in 2004. Occupy was 2011. Detainees mm -hmm. from the 2004 RNC protests, they sued New York City over their response to the RNC protests. During those proceedings, lawyers for protesters described the temporary detention facilities as Guantanamo on the Hudson. However, the city's settlement does not admit police liability. Is the violence the point? Is the city willing to pay for and the police willing to commit violence in the form of extrajudicial punishment against those who wish to protest? It certainly looks like that, doesn't it? And so you mentioned the Republican New York City hosted the Republican National Convention in 2004. And what they did at Pier 57 is they created a, a mass arrest processing center. So for the RNC, for that mega event, the NYPD basically changed the way that they dealt with mass arrests, where before you would just take, you know, a, a wagon full of, of um, arrestees uh, to different precincts so that no one precinct would get overwhelmed by the numbers. And for the 2004 RNC, they created a mass arrest processing center. So the, the arrestees were all brought to Pier 57. You know, as you uh, point out, it was disgusting. There were toxic, you know, there were chemicals on, on hazardous materials and, and waste on, on the floors. There's razor wire. Um, there weren't sufficient porta potties. There were no sanitary items for women. And people were just kept there for 20, 30, 40, in some cases, up to 50 hours for processing. Now, the NYPD decided that they were not, there are different ways to get arrested in New York City. And there are some ways which are called summons, which is very quick um, and leads to little to no detention or custody. And the NYPD decided to have a no summons policy for the RNC in 2004. And they also decided that they were going to fingerprint everybody that they arrested. So they bring out everybody to the mass arrest processing center, but there's no fingerprinting technology or equipment at the mass arrest processing center. And so this is just a built-in delay. And so it was entire, you know, it was entirely foreseeable that they, by designing the whole process in this way, take them to Pier 57 first before you bring them um, into Manhattan to, um, you know, to await the fingerprinting and, and, um, and an arraignment this means this meant that you were dragging out the process and basically trying to keep protesters off the streets during the 2004 RNC. This is purposely punitive. They are trying yeah. to punish people for protesting, even though in the past they could have just given them a summons and all mm -hmm. of this was very avoidable. So is that no Absolutely. summons policy? Is that something that has been made permanent? Because you point out how the kind of security that is employed at mega events becomes the normalized security in many of these big cities that hold events like the current Olympics. So is no summons now a permanent fixture of the New York Police Department? I wouldn't say it's a, a permanent uh, fixture, but it is something that is deployed um, 
at the discretion of the NYPD, often against protesters in order to keep them in custody for 24 hours or or or, or longer. And um, yeah. And then in 2015, four years after Occupy and one year after the RNC protesters won their lawsuit, New York City agreed to pay a total of $332,500 to six Occupy Wall Street protesters who said police unjustly blasted them with pepper spray. Following last summer's protests against racialized police violence, the City Department of Investigation in New York City released a scathing report charging the NYPD with overreacting during protests over police brutality and racial injustice after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Why are the lawsuits and money paid out not a deterrence to the police to commit cruel violence against protesters? And will they ever learn their lesson as long as there is no police liability in these lawsuits? Right. So in um, in New York City, uh, if you say sued the hospital corporation um, and and won, you know, through uh, litigation, then the um, the money that you won would come out of the budget of the hospital corporation. But if you sue the NYPD and win, that money comes out of the city's budget as a whole. And so in a way, the NYPD doesn't have a financial incentive really um, to um, reduce their level of force in order to reduce their exposure to litigation. And, um, and this, is, this is something that's been noted. It also lets us see that basically the city of, of New York subsidizes the brutality of the NYPD, right? They, in a way, they support it uh, economically. So how would you get around that? Is there some way to make the police department itself liable for the for the fines, for the fees, to make it so they aren't incentivized to be violent? I mean, we have these incentivization programs so they can take people's uh, belongings that they believe were involved in a crime. Why can't we uh, also have a de-incentivization program when it comes to police violence at protests? Yeah, that's something that has been uh, urged. Um, uh, on the NYPD um, by New York City auditors, and uh, you know it hasn't been done. I mean, here we could just point out that um, you know that the ostensibly liberal Democrat uh, De Blasio appointed the same commissioner of the NYPD, Bill Bratton, as did Rudy Giuliani in the early 1990s. And so New York City, uh, in a way, you know, wants this kind of policing or at least the, you know, the establishment in New York City does. You write that if protesters refuse to be penned and insist on their rights to assemble in public parks, they face abuse and arrest, if not brutality and violence. If they comply with the NYPD's restrictive conditions for protests, they still risk abuse and arrest, if not brutality and violence. If protest is treated as a crime in New York City, and in the very First Amendment of the Constitution is the right to assemble and free speech, is New York City and its police force violating the law of the land? And if it is, what does it say about the United States when the country's most populated city does not recognize the basic rights guaranteed in the Constitution? Right. And so absolutely, it, it shows that government in a way is not only post-democratic um, for the way, you know, it's so important the right to demonstrate or to protest uh, because of how clogged our basic political system is, um, that political parties um, do not effectively channel grievances um, from the grassroots uh, to the state for policymaking to ameliorate inequalities um, you know, or public policy problems. And if the regular channels of um, of communication from citizens to the state are clogged or dysfunctional or corrupt, then our last opportunity is to demonstrate or protest. And when that channel is closed down by authoritarian policing, you know, then um, you know it's clear that we've got a authoritarian state formation or what I call neoliberal authoritarianism that's that's post-democratic. And it's also a post-legitimation state. It's post-legitimacy. Um, when the state governs for markets, it's not governing for the people. 
And so when you um, have a post-legitimation state, you do rely on force to maintain order. And that's what we see. Um, that's what we see in New York City. And so while I was doing my research, one of the things, in addition to talking to activists who were involved in Occupy Wall Street, for example, and lawyers who observed protests during Occupy Wall Street or who defended um, protesters who were arrested, one of the things I did was I looked at civil rights cases that were brought um, in the federal courts, usually uh, against the NYPD's policing by activists or groups of activists. And so I was tracing out um, kind of the systematic ways that the NYPD um, exercises force, keeps people in, you know, in custody for excessive lengths, uses gratuitous violence um, to shut down protesters uh, like the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, what, and so this was hard to see at the time that I was doing my research, but with the racial justice protests during the summer of 2020, it just became blatant for everybody to see, um, where the police just gratuitously um, kettled protesters, used violence um, that was unnecessary, almost like retribution for demonstrating. And, and, so, and they had to know that they were being videoed, and yet they did it anyway. And that lets us see the sense of impunity uh, that uh, police currently operate with. And so this sort of you know, show, shined a, a very bright light on practices before that um, were not maybe not widely known. And um, New York State finally brought a, uh, a lawsuit <clears throat> against uh, the city of New York saying that it systematically violates uh, people's constitutional rights. So what would you say to somebody who argues that last summer's protests were an anomaly? There was a pandemic going on. There was an extreme singular event. I know this is not the case. There was an extreme singular event of George Floyd being killed, that this was during the Trump administration and everything was different because of that. What would you say to somebody who argues that last summer's protests will never see anything like that again because it was an anomaly? Well, the size of the protests were unique. The New York Times estimated that it was the largest social movement in U.S. history. And so that's phenomenal. And um, and that's great. Of course, uh, these things have been um, building for a while. And what was not an anomaly was the was the brutality um, of the police vis-a-vis -vis the demonstrators, because that's something that Occupy Wall Street experienced. That's something that uh, demonstrators, when Eric Garner uh, was killed by Pan Officer Panaleo of the NYPD um, back in 2014, and there were demonstrations um, about the failure to charge Pantaleo, um, those demonstrations were met with brutality. Of course, the demonstrators in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 were met, you know, with military force, um, you know, and so, uh, the reaction of police is not anomalous. Uh, that's been uh, pretty consistent. The only, you know, the really unique, uh, aspects, um, of the summer of 2020 is that they were just doing it for all to see. Because um, the cameras were on them now because of the, the size of the demonstrations and uh, the way that the killing of George Floyd, um, you know, was just horrible, you know, for almost nine minutes and the way that video went, went viral um, and the horror of that, you know, so the size of the demonstrations was unique or anomalous. Um, un unfortunately, uh, the brutality of the police um, was not. We were discussing the escalated force model of policing protest earlier, and you write how that transformed beginning in some cities in the 1970s and through the 1980s and into the 1990s. The negotiated management model of protest policing became established as the dominant model for policing protest. Police should understand their role as helping to protect First Amendment rights. They should encourage demonstrators to apply for permits, and they should reach out to political groups and establish lines of communication 
they should even work with groups planning acts of civil disobedience as part of part of a demonstration, negotiating how arrests could be conducted or should be. So on paper, is this still the strategy? Is this the strategy they say they employ today? Because this does sound a lot like what you hear at police press conferences in the run up to and the aftermath of poli- of protests. Yeah, the argument of, of the book is that that model of protest policing is no longer operative. Um, and so that is a model of um, police protester interaction that would be more consistent uh, with democracy. And, you know, that was um, a model that uh, sort of in, like you said, in, in many cities um, became more operative in the 1970s and 1980s on into the early 1990s. But I think that that model of police protester interactions, that more tolerant model is no longer operative. And I think that broken windows policing is one important reason why that model is no longer operative. That broken windows policing, which um, urges uh, a police uh, reaction to the most minor perceived forms of disorder, even if it's not criminal, um, it's just the appearance of disorder, um, and to react to that with zero tolerance. Well, if you are training your police department to respond to the most minor signs of disorder with zero tolerance, well, the First Amendment requires tolerance. And so you've trained your police department um, to act in a way that is in contradiction with uh, the requirements of a law enforcement agency operating in a constitutional democracy where freedom of speech is protected. But I think that there's a second factor um, that we really haven't touched on for why protest policing has become much more aggressive, hostile, um, and intolerant of demonstrations. And that's transformations in urban political economy. That after the urban fiscal crisis, um, cities had lost uh, a lot of residents. Um, they'd lost a lot of manufacturing jobs. Um, and so they uh, were revenue starved and many states actually limited uh, the capacity of cities to be able to revenue raise. And so what they started to do was to behave in a little bit more of an entrepreneurial way and reorient urban infrastructures away from their residents and towards potential visitors and tourists, in addition to trying to remake themselves as hospitable locations for the finance, insurance, and real estate industries. And so one of the things that they would do in reorienting their infrastructure towards potential visitors, tourists, conventions, and so forth, is to host mega events, uh, large-scale events, uh, maybe an athletic event like the Super Bowl, or maybe something like the Democratic or Republican National Conventions uh, as a way to brand themselves, and as a way to market themselves to potential tourists, conventions, and so forth. And the the um, the largest, most significant mega events get classified as a national special security event or NSSE. It's the highest security classification in U.S. law. And uh, when that happens, uh, you've got all kinds of um, materials at the federal level uh, for cities and police departments that are going to be hosting a mega event. Um, the the executive level of police staff will visit other cities that are currently hosting a mega event or an NSSC to observe their security arrangements so they can bring that uh, back home. And so as cities host these mega events like Super Bowls or you know a major party convention or a major economic summit, um, they are, you know, they are um, treating protests as a potential threat to the event, um, much like crime or terrorism or a natural disaster would be considered a, a threat or a risk 
uh, to the success of that mega event. And so that mega event needs to be hosted by the city without disruption for it to be successful, to successfully brand the city and to su successfully market the city. And so any possible disruption from a demonstration or protest, that has to be limited. And so it does not treat protests or demonstrations as exercises by citizens of rights of free speech. Instead, it treats protests as a potential threat and they respond to it in that way. And if you host like a, a major party convention or something like that, you get um, money federally allocated uh, to beef up your security arrangements. And so after that mega event is over, a lot of the security that you purchased, um, that stays in the city, whether it's cameras on telephone poles or um, you know, or, or scooters or, uh, or, or MRAPs or, or armored vehicles or, or, or what have you. That stays in the city as a security legacy. And so these, you know, this style of, um, of urban political economy sort of embeds security within the urban environment, and that stays as a legacy. And so really the aggressive forms of protest policing um, that um, has emerged and the negotiated management system of more tolerant police protester interactions broke down, I think, due to this horizontal force of broken windows policing that sort of swept the nation on the one hand, and then this vertical force of mega events and national special security um, events, host cities hosting these events, and that would leave a security legacy. And so it's that kind of, those twin influences have really broken the negotiated management system of protest policing and embedded uh, what I call the, you know, the security model of protest policing that is a much more authoritarian, um, much less tolerant um, and more aggressive way for police to respond to protests. But is that negotiated management model, is that the, the rhetoric? that is used by the city and by the police force, that they still are involved in that kind of negotiated model instead of the more aggressive one that they're involved in today? Uh, you know, I guess in a press conference, um, you will hear a, a police commissioner or a mayor saying that they respect the rights of demonstrators. Um, but we can see what is happening on the streets. And that, you know, and that's not consistent with the negotiated management model. Um, there's no dialogue. Um, you know, we've got plenty of videos up on YouTube where you can see a commander point at protesters in New York City and then officers go grab them. There's no negotiation. Um, they just respond and grab, you know, and take somebody away um, in a police car or a police wagon. And you point out that within this mega event framework, protest is represented not as a democratic practice, but as a threat equivalent to crime or any other risk to the event that must be prevented. Mega event and these uh, mega event security planning materials reinforce the market based calculations of entrepreneurial cities. And you mentioned how these are all geared towards these mega events, especially post 9-11, all geared towards making certain that there are no terrorist events. How much do anti-terror strategies contribute to far more violent policing at all protests? Yeah, I think that um, the reaction to the attacks of September 11th, that certainly has heightened security arrangements in the United States. And it's made some money available to cities um, in the name of Homeland Security. But the break with the negotiated management model of more tolerant interactions between police and protesters, I think that that was breaking down. I think the evidence shows that it was breaking down prior to the attacks of September 11th. For example, when Seattle hosted the World Trade Organization, uh, meetings in 1999, uh, police responded to demonstrators uh, with chemical weapons um, and, you know, with brutality in a way that was sort of not in keeping with the way that demonstrators um, had um, 
had expected Seattle police to respond. It was something distinctive um, when Seattle hosted the, the World Trade Organization in 1999. But that event shows how the negotiated management model of police protest or interactions was breaking down even before the attacks of September 11th. And that's why I think it's important to point to political economy and transformations in urban political economy as contributing to um, harsher policing. Um, Seattle wanted to brand itself, right? It wanted to market itself as a particular kind of city, as a particular kind of location in the global economy by hosting the WTO. And when cities host um, mega events, now they wanna make sure that they're not gonna be another Seattle. And so they really beef up security arrangements, treat protests as threats, um, not as citizens exercising First Amendment rights. And so I think that the negotiated management model, um, a more tolerant model of police protest or interactions, that was breaking down prior to the attacks of September 11th. Um, 2001. I think that, um, you know, certainly the response after September 11th has, um, you know, has certainly intensified security arrangements, but that wasn't the cause of the breakdown of negotiated management. That was happening in the 1990s. So you also write that Harvard University's Samuel, Samuel Huntington argued marginal social groups, as in the case of blacks, are now becoming full participants in the political system. This was written during the protests of the 60s, creating a danger of overloading the political system with their demands. Huntington added his voice to those who perceived in the protests of the 1960s a crisis of democracy, a crisis produced by too much democratic mobilization. American political culture was developing an exhaustion, if not an antipathy, toward democracy. Why, Paul, is there suddenly too much democracy when marginalized groups are given access to democracy <laughs> and the ability to act upon democratic values? Why all of a sudden is there just too much democracy? Well, I can't answer that in Huntington's dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we tried uh, to get him for the show, but he wouldn't respond to our emails. Yeah, but it lets us see how uh, there is one aspect in American society that um, saw in the demonstrations and protests of the 1960s, um, you know, a threat and even saw it as a crime. Southern segregationists uh, saw the civil rights movement as basically um, a criminal conspiracy um, or mass criminal behavior, because if people are engaging in sit-ins at segregated lunch counters or sitting in the white section of a bus um, when they are black, um, that is literally violating uh, segregation laws, even if it's in the name of a higher law, say the U.S. Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. But from the perspective of white supremacists, from the perspective of, of Southern segregationists, the civil rights movement was a criminal movement. This was crime. And so um, this uh, was the sort of the, the emergence of a sense of a crime crisis. These uh, the civil rights movement. Um, and so all I can say is that there is a segment in American society um, that sees democracy perhaps as a problem that became exhausted with democracy by the time we hit the 1970s, um, if not actually um, having an antipathy towards democracy by the time we hit the 1970s. And so what that shows us is that there is a tendency that is gaining political voice in the 1970s, and that political voice is particularly loud today. We see it on the Supreme Court gutting the, the Voting Rights um, Act, for example. We see it in state legislatures as uh, many state legislatures, particularly but not exclusively in the South, try to make voting um, more difficult or to gerrymander districts, um, you know, in order to make sure that conservatives are elected. 
And so this didn't just kind of come out of nowhere. Um, this is kind of a reaction against the democratic movements of the 1960s. And Huntington was giving early voice to that. And you write that the Kerner Commission's report on the urban uprisings of the 1967 expressed this orientation when it criticized policing in urban areas as inconsistent with the role of police in dem- democratic si- society from the social democratic orientation. Urban civil disorder represented a legitimation crisis. What did those who held these social democratic values fear could happen if this legitimation crisis were to continue? Did they fear more uprisings? Yes, yes. And so in a way, it's like a parallax view between, say, the Kerner Commission or certain intellectuals like Jürgen Habermas, who wrote about a legitimation crisis or Klaus Alpha. Um, And so from the pro-democracy side, for those who value democracy, uh, the protests of the 1960s, um, the civil disorder in cities in the 1960s or the riots in the 1960s um, that were occurring because uh, the promise of equality was glaringly absent in material reality uh, for many Americans. And so the Kerner Commission report kind of represented this orientation that, look, we need to close the gap between the promise of equality and the material reality in which so many people live in terms of uh, racial segregation, lack of um, uh, inequality, uh, lack of good housing, et cetera. And, um, and so the Kerner Commission report was written from that orientation. And so policing needs to be reformed. Uh, you need to stop, stop and frisk, treat people with respect, um, behave more like a law enforcement agency rather than, you know, you know simply exercising back alley justice. And then you have the folks like Samuel Huntington and for them, the protests uh, and, um, and demonstrations of the 1960s, that represented too much democracy. Um, that was overloading the system and creating a different kind of crisis, a crisis of democracy. And so democracy, democratic inclusion needed to be scaled back to maintain order. And so it's like this parallax view. And so in the immediate years, just after the Kerner Commission report, there were some reforms and attempts to reform policing, uh, for example. But ultimately, the longer term is that the folks that Samuel Huntington was speaking for, they gathered increasing political power. And the election of Richard Nixon in 1968 just points to that. in which it gets to, as you point out, Richard Nixon splintered the hegemony of the Kerner Commission's more social democratic orientation with its successful campaign for the presidency in 68. When the Kerner Commission's report was released, Nixon complained that the report blamed everyone for the riots except those who rioted. Is police violence against protesters normalized because Nixon was able to convince the public that protesters who were victimized by police violence are not victims, rather they get what they deserve. Are we still in that same Nixonian framework when it comes to the police? Yeah, I think so. Um, that uh, Nick, I think that Nixon's election in 1968 kind of shattered this kind of dominant acceptance that uh, the United States needed to work progressively towards closing that gap between the promise of equality and the reality of material inequalities. And so you have a whole bunch of political elites who, um, bipartisan, by the way, talking about uh, how the Johnson administration needed to move quicker to implement the recommendations of the Kerner Commission report. And then you have Nixon, who just totally broke with kind of like establishment liberal um, perspectives saying, look, this report blames everybody for the riots except for the people who were rioting. Um, and Nixon, you know, with his Southern strategy to take the presidency in 1968, um, was refounding 
in a way, the Republican Party. And he got four appointments to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court started backing away um, from some important legal doctrines protecting the right of freedom of speech. The Supreme Court started privileging commercial activity over freedom of speech and democratic rights. And that, um, you know, that tendency has only gathered strength uh, since uh, Nixon was president. And that is the kind of world in which we've been living, the world in a way that, that Nixon began to build um, with, his, with his presidency in, in 1968 and, um, you know, and the way that he broke with a kind of liberal democratic norms. Did the Burger Court then, you know, guided by Nixon's nominations uh, to the court, institutionalize, legalize, putting profits before people? If we wanted to undo that idea of putting profits before people, would we have to change it at the level of the Supreme Court? Absolutely. That's well, that's you know, that's one. Uh, One of the things I admire about uh, conservatives is that they fight on all fronts. And that's what we need to do, too. And so the Supreme Court has absolutely privileged property rights um, and, um, you know, economic behavior over the rights uh, critical to democracy, such as freedom of speech. And that's a reversal of the constitutional order that existed in the United States from about 1938 um, up through the early 1970s when Nixon got his four appointments. Um, and so we've broken um, with that uh, preferred position for democracy in constitutional law jurisprudence. Um, and so that, that's absolutely the case. Why are police so supportive of neoliberal authoritarianism? Because I'm betting if I asked a cop what neoliberal authoritarianism is, like the most of the greater population, they would not know. So why do you think it is that the police are so supportive to the point of being violent of neoliberal authoritarianism? Uh, That's a good question. And in the early days of Occupy, they hoped to get the police on their side saying, you know, you're overworked, you're underpaid, we're, you know, we're doing this for you. Um, And the cops said, no, thanks. And so I think, um, you know, I think people, you know, people enter police department for any number of reasons. Um, Some of them may be good, some of them not so good. Um, but at the end of the day, the police department is there to enforce the existing order. And if the existing order is highly unequal, that's what they're enforcing, um, you know, just as a matter of course, uh, for their job. Um, but you know, by mentioning the police though, this does let us, uh, sort of circle back to broken windows policing, where broken windows policing is actually a reaction against conceptualizing policing as law enforcement that the Kerner Commission report sought to advocate. Um, In the famous essay on broken windows policing published in 1982, um, George Kelling, a guy who was a consultant, he did a lot of work with the NYPD um, and James Q. Wilson, a conservative political scientist, argued that police need to uh, be more than a, you know, we need to reject that law enforcement model and instead simply impose order and react to the slightest signs of disorder, even if they aren't criminal. One last question for you, Paul. We've been speaking with Paul A. Passavant. He is author of Policing Protest, the Post-Democratic State and the Figure of Black Insurrection. You can follow Paul on Twitter at P. Passavant. That's P-P-A-S-S-A-V-A-N-T. One last question for you, Paul. And as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. So if it acts like an authoritarian government, if our government right now is acting like an authoritarian government, if its police are acting in an authoritarian way, is the U.S. a democracy because we voted in this authoritarian government? After all, without using the word neoliberalism, didn't even Carter, as well as Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush one, Clinton, Bush two, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, don't they all embrace neoliberalism and, and its policies? So we voted them into power 
even if they are acting in an authoritarian way, isn't this still a democracy? Yeah, that's a question from hell, isn't it? I, I think that we need to think about democracy as, democracy as something more than voting. Um, and so part of democracy um, means that people uh, have a kind of equality of, um, you know, of life chances, um, of quality of life. And that clearly doesn't exist, um, you know, in, in, um, in our society. And protesting is one of the aspects of democracy. And so if you don't um, let people um, express themselves, um, you know, on the ground in that way, then I don't think that we can call ourselves a democracy, particularly as that manner of expression has become so much more important with the corruption of the major political parties, um, with the way that they've gotten bought, not bought, they've been bought off by um, oligarchs and corporations. And so the political parties, which again are supposed to be institutions critical for democracy, if they're not functioning to facilitate communication and the resolution of grievances between people living in society and the state, if they don't function that way, then they're not functioning in a way that's consistent with democracy. And of course, that points to how protest is even more important. And if police close that door as well, then I don't see, you know, how we can call ourselves a democracy. We can call ourselves, you know, a simulacrum of democracy, but we can also see particularly uh, on the Supreme Court, but not exclusively on the Supreme Court, um, you know, we've got white nationalists in Congress like Gossart, people who consort with uh, right-wing violent extremists like Matt Goetz in Florida. Um, we can see an increasingly vocal segment of government that is overtly hostile to democracy. And so I think that increasingly we cannot call ourselves a democracy, though many still um, hold out hope um, on that promise. Paul Passavant is author of Policing Protest, the Post-Democratic State and the Figure of Black Insurrection. Thank you so much for being on our show today, Paul. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. We right. appreciate it. Take care. If that conversation with Paul Passavant on the policing of protest and the authoritarianism it ushers in made you angry, sad, gave you anxiety, was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have held prior to that conversation. Or it just made you feel more educated or to realize that, yes, this is really hell. Show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks for your support. And thanks to AP who wrote us yesterday to tell us that we should change that little segment there. Also, 10 years ago, it's been 10 years since uh, Occupy Wall Street in September. So maybe what we should be sharing on Patreon, maybe this week or in coming weeks, are interviews from 2011 when we were covering Occupy Wall Street. And also, I meant, noticed on Patreon that they're very rarely, when I'm we're sharing these classic interviews, very rarely do you hear me ask a question from hell. And I'll explain on this week's Patreon why there is no question from hell on a lot of those shows from the aughts. This is not the media. This is hell. Alex, please remind our listeners, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how they are responding. This week's question from hell in a rich guy voice is, where are you summering? Where are you summering? I like how you don't even try a rich guy's voice. I don't know voice. how to talk like William Buckley. How do you put a monocle in your eye and then make that sound? Uh, SPW says, Monster Island, look, they've been misunderstood, and COVID hasn't reached there yet. Beats Lollapalooza town anytime. <laughs> David S. says, Mara Lego. <laughs> Adam D. says, Whole Foods Toilet. <laughs> Where are you summering? Where are you summering in a rich guy voice? Chris H. says, Cape God, damn it. Scott S. says, getting cooked low and slow here in Minnesota, where it's as dry as Phoenix this year and a nice smoke is coming down from Canada. Ramsey B. says, 1996 Chevy Cavalier. <laughs> Where are you summering? Where are you summering? Jack W. says, newer Orleans. Justin M. says, in low Earth orbit. Aaron D. says, Motel 6. 
San Luis Obispo. <laughs> nice. Kobias says, in the basement of Maslow's Pyramid, my candle just blew out. <laughs> and finally, where are you summering? Steve C. says, Ganymede. It ain't melting anytime soon. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell again at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. We'll have even more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show when I believe Richard Norwood will be producing. We will be hosting our 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show. This is art. All day long, Saturday, September 18th, featuring live music and art opening and a raffle of This Is Hell related or inspired or adjacent prizes. If you are a musician or would like to suggest a musical act you would like to see perform, or you are an artist or would like to recommend an artist for the art opening, email us at chuck at and maybe you or your suggestion will be performing music or displaying their art. That's the 25th anniversary This Is How Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show This Is Art happening on Saturday, September 18th. Send your suggestion for musical acts to perform or arts to show their work as soon as possible to chuck at this is hell.com. Yes, our actually anniversary of airing on WNUR was uh, a couple weeks ago, but we had to reschedule the party due to the ongoing pandemic. So it's now happening on September 18th. Put it in your calendars. It's happening all day at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at this is hell.com. Uh, we got law history scholar A.S. Dillingham on to talk about his new book, Oaxaca Resurgent, Indigeneity, Development, and Inequality in 20th Century Mexico. And Thursday's show? Uh, check your email. And if you are interested in becoming a producer on the show, just like Alex, email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Remember, this position does come with a very modest stipend as well. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Thanks to Paul Passavant, today's guest, and thanks to Alexander Jerry for booking Paul, as well as running today's board. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.